0: Good morning again. Good morning again. That's much better. Those of you that, that don't know me, uh, my name is Cody Snyder, and I'm privileged to serve as one of the pastors here at Hamilton Baptist Church alongside Stephen and Josh. And uh, it's, been, it's been over two years now since uh, I first came here as an intern, and it's been a joy and a delight to. To learn from you all, to learn pastoral ministry from Stephen and Josh and the other elders. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting after, after, so that's, that's two, two plus years sitting under Stephen's preaching, right? Something like that. And uh, one thing I, I've picked up on, there are certain c- clues or signs that you're listening to a sermon by Stephen Karn. I want to give you five of those things this morning. I promise this has something to do with our sermon. So my question is, how can you tell that you're listening to a sermon by Stephen Karn? Well, I think there are five clues that you can look for. And keep this in mind in the next coming weeks. First, often there's a sign. There's there's talk in his sermon about baseball as a sign of God's goodness. And soccer as a consequence of the fall. (laughs) Number two. There's often hiking illustrations. Number three. Every sermon is introduced with a date, so you get a free history lesson as well. Number four, there's often a disdain for cats in the sermon. It comes out. And number five, not often, but every time, there's a humble submission to Holy Scripture and a confident and bold proclamation that Jesus is Lord and Savior, to which we all say amen, and we're so grateful for it. And so I hope you continue to be thankful and pray for that. But if these things aren't happening in a sermon, I don't care if it looks like Stephen or sounds like Stephen, it ain't Stephen, right? There are certain signs, things that have to be true for it to be a sermon by Stephen Karn. Now, our passage today in Psalm 16 also raises a question. And the question is, how do you know that you're living? I don't mean taking your physical pulse I assume you're here today, meaning you're alive. But how can you tell that you're on what the psalmist calls, King David calls, the path of life? Psalm 16 helps you answer that today. In a sense, it it checks your spiritual pulse. So if you have your Bible this morning, please turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. And as you're turning there... Remember that the book of Psalms is about hundred. Well, it is 150 poems that were collected while the Israelites were in exile around the 6th century B.C. And this was really the songbook of the people of God that they've been singing for thousands of years. And so it's kind of cool as we're opening up this ancient text this morning, it's something that the people of God have been singing and praying and considering for, for thousands of years. And the Psalms are meant to be transformative. They're meant to help us see the world, see one another, and ourselves in a radically different way. Mainly God's, God's way, his perspective. And there are certain signals that indicate which path of life you're on. If you go back to Psalm chapter 1 and an open, I'm sure it's a familiar passage, the psalmist opens up by giving us two ways to live. There's the path of life, and there's the path of death and destruction and if you could take a test somehow without getting swabbed up your nose what would the results be are you on the path of life or are you on the path of of death and the thing about christianity and the people of god is that the symptoms are not asymptomatic so if you are on the path of life a follower of Jesus, who we'll see this psalm is actually pointing to as we read from Acts chapter 2 this morning. Here's what I pray for you this morning as a follower of Jesus, that you would have a renewed confidence in Jesus, who is our unshakable hope in life and death. Furthermore, I hope that you will be resolved to find deeper delight and joy in him and this next year, since we're all thinking about that. But if you're here this morning or you're listening and you're not sure or you don't really consider yourself to be a Christian, I'm also praying for you as well. And I I pray that you would see your great need of a refuge and where to find it. A delight which will never disappear. A love which will never leave. So with that in mind, let's read Psalm 16. Psalm 16. A miktam of David. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh God, would you help us? Would you illuminate your word for us this morning so that we may see and behold and delight in Jesus? And we ask this in his name. Amen. As you're reading this psalm, or maybe you've just heard it for the first time, you notice there's... There's a lot going on in this passage. At first it seems like kind of a bunch of random information shoveled together. But I want to show you this morning that that's actually not what's going on. I hope you'll be able to read your Bible the better, especially the book of Psalms even after we go through this. But it starts out, there's there's fears, there's this call for, preserve me, O God. And then there's this, somehow, this turn of unshakable confidence in verse 8... And then he's also praising God with what he calls his whole being. Here's the main idea I want you to take away from from this sermon today. And it's this. Those who find refuge, provision, and delight in the Lord... ...will be brought through life and death... ...to boundless joy and life unending. Let me say that again. The main idea for our text this morning is this. Those who find refuge, provision... And delight in the Lord will be brought through both life and death to boundless joy and life unending. And we're going to walk through this in three sections. Refuge, provision, joy, and delight. So first, refuge. And we see this happening in verses 1 through 4. Preserve me, King David cries out. Guard me. Keep me safe, O God. ...you notice it says that this is a miktam of David in the inscription there. And we don't know what that means. There's a lot of ink spilled on that, but none of which is persuasive. Or we don't really know the exact historical situation... ...that sparked this prayer for preservation. So we're not exactly sure what David is seeking protection from. However, I think if you glance down and you see what's going on in verse 10... ...I think we have a clue... Death itself is on the mind of the king. Death itself is on the mind of David. And we're reminded that death is a real threat. And not just a threat, but all of our future at some point in life. And something that rightly elicits fear. It's something we should be afraid of. But notice what David does with this this fear or his emotions... What we tend to do with our emotions or our fear are, are one of two things. We tend to, one, there's those of us who kind of stuff it in the back seat. Kind of a, a sto- modern day stoicism. Right? I don't want people to know I'm afraid. I don't want people to know I'm thinking about these things. I don't want people to know this is bothering me. And we stuff it in the back seat. That's some of you even in this room this morning. You have fears and you don't want to confess those to anybody. There's others of you, though, who we tend to let those fears or these emotions sit in the steering wheel, right? They're driving us. They take control of us. And so most of us or some of us tend to stuff them in the back seat. Some of us let them take the wheel. And you know what happens when our emotions drive the wheel. But the book of Psalms offers a a middle way. It doesn't neglect our emotions and our fears and our desires, nor does it let them take the steering wheel of our lives, the Psalms help educate our emotions. And this is what David does. Notice what he does with this. He confesses it. He takes it to prayer in God, to God. And look how verse 1 ends. For in you I take refuge. Why is David crying out preservation for preservation guard, for guarding from God? He says, because in you I take refuge. For in you... I take refuge. And this is really, really important for our passage. In fact, this is the foundation of David's prayer. God, you are my refuge. God, you are my shelter. Do you see David's foundation for asking God to preserve him? David isn't bragging about his accomplishments or even his status as God's chosen king. He's not saying, help me, God. I've been good this year. That's what we say to Santa Claus, not God. Or preserve me, God. I promise I'll do better next year. As if God's blessing or reward could be won by a better New Year's resolution. Or he's not saying, grant me this request. Look at all the ways I've served you. No. Preserve me, God. Because my security, my hope is in you. You're my shelter. I trust you. As a kid, many of my days were spent in the woods with with my cousins building what we would call forts. And these could be made out of anything you would find in the woods. Sticks, briars, leaves. And these things we thought were awesome. And one of the most satisfying things as a kid when you would build one of these little forts for some reason for me anyway was whenever it would start to rain and we could somehow make a a roof out of like mud and leaves I thought it was so cool if I wasn't getting wet if I was sitting in my little fort while it was raining outside and I wasn't getting wet but occasionally or often as happens in the summer times there are some rather large thunderstorms that roll through the mountains of central Pennsylvania And when those type of storms came, when the wind really started blowing and lightning started showing up in the sky, guess where I didn't stay? I didn't stay in that little tree fort. I went to my grandma's house. I went to my house. Why? Because I had confidence. I felt much more safe in that than in my little fort. And David is saying, he's coming before God, I have confidence in you. You will protect me. You are my shelter. And he goes on to say in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. When he says, I say to the Lord, he says, I say to Yahweh, which of course is God's personal name. The God who created the world. And when you hear the the word Lord, and our translators in the ESV capitalized L-O-R-D. That's the name for Yahweh. And you should be thinking about the God who created the world, the God who is committed to renewing this world, the God who is committed to renewing his people, the God of the covenants, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of the Exodus. And if you go back and read 2 Samuel chapter 7 this afternoon, you will see that this God of covenants, this God of creation, this God who's renewing the world also made a promise to King David. That's what David's thinking about when he says, Yahweh, the Lord. And he says, the Lord, Yahweh, is my Lord. He's not saying Yahweh is my Yahweh, but Yahweh is my Adonai. He's my master. This God is the one whom I'm indebted to. He has my sole trust. And to make this ever clear, I have no good apart from him. He is my, as the Hebrew says, tov. He's my happiness. He's my good. He's my delight. And I don't have any of that apart from him. In times of fear, as as King David is expressing here, what's one of our first tendencies when we fear? Well, it's to doubt the goodness of God. It's to question the goodness of God. And it's interesting that that's the first truth that King David runs to. ...in his time of fear and despair and need of protection. David affirms this from the start. In verse 3... ...seems odd to me at first. I mean, mean, just read this as we read this passage. Verse 1, preserve me, God, I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my master. I have no good apart from you. And then look what he says in verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones... ...in whom is all my delight... Doesn't that seem a little bit odd? A little bit? This seems out of place, but it's not. You see what David is showing us here is that your vertical devotion and your vertical delight in God results in the horizontal devotion and the horizontal delight in God's people. To delight in God is to delight in his people. How do you know you're taking refuge in God? One of the signs is that you will delight in God's people. There's no dollar menu. You get the combo. ...with God. And I think it's important to be reminded here... ...what David seems to be indicating to us is... ...look, if if you're apathetic... ...towards God's people... ...Christians... ...you should be a little bit concerned in your hearts. Because there's a connection of taking refuge in God... ...delighting in God and His people. So if you're apathetic... ...you ought to be concerned. After all, what did Jesus say in John 13? How will people know... How will the world know that you belong to me, Jesus asks. How will they know that you're my followers if you have love for one another? It doesn't say I put up with or a word we use often, I tolerate them, but it says I delight in them. Now, I don't know everybody in here. I don't know your story. I don't know if you love everybody in this room or you don't. But that can be hard to do if you don't. How do I delight in somebody I really don't get along with in the church? Well, I think there's two things you can do, just very practically. One is consider how much God has loved you despite your failures. And consider the fact that God doesn't put up with you. That's not what God is like. He doesn't wait for you to make a mistake so that he can scold you. God delights in you. And if God, the all-powerful, holy, perfect one, delights in you, sinner, and redeems you... ...could, in that, maybe you find the strength to forgive and delight... ...and another brother and sister in Jesus. Second of all, do you remember a few months ago when we were outside... ...Pastor Stephen... um, held up a little booklet i don't have it with me but it was a it was a prayer booklet um it was a membership directory or all of those who attend hamilton baptist church it has their phone numbers their address their contact information their names and what did he encourage us to do he said pray through this and i know there are some of you in here who are doing that and i also would guess that there are some of you in here who are not doing that why not start that even this year Pray for somebody. It's a lot easier to delight in somebody to forgive somebody if you're praying for them. And let them know you prayed for them. Call them. Send them an email. Let them know. Those who delight in God delight in his people. And then we see this going on in verse 4. We, so we saw the positive aspect in verse 3. Now we see a negative aspect in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after other gods, another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So if to find refuge in God means to delight in God's people... ...David also says that to find refuge in God means to reject other gods. To detest other gods. David is saying what he's talking about with these drink offerings of of blood... ...he's he's talking about their, their cultic worship practices... And he's saying, I'm not participating in that. In fact, I'm so against what they're doing. I'm so finding my refuge in God that I won't even say their names. I won't even say them on my lips. Why would David say this? He says, because their sorrows multiply. And it's easy to skim over this. It's easy to read that and say, yes, other gods, sorrows multiply. Don't go there. But it's not that easy for us, is it? It's really not. We need to pause here because you and I have a hard time believing this. Sure, we're not running after divine entities for our significance and security. But we still run, don't we? We could call them the same gods with different names. We still run after wealth. We still run after Beauty after power, after sex, after fertility, after health, after education, after food. And all of these things you could study if you wanted to, the ancient gods and see what they provided. But you go scratch their back, they'll scratch yours. You go bless this god, they'll take care of your crops for the year. You go bless this god, they'll help you be fertile. You go bless this god, they'll give you victory over the enemy. Same gods, different names. If I have that, I'll have the good life. What would that be for you? I just need this amount of money in my bank account. Then I'll feel secure. I'll have significance. I just need to hit that number on the scale. Then I'll have significance. I'll have security in myself. If my kids accomplish... Fill in the blank. Then I'll have security. Then I'll have significance. Those kind of questions are like mirrors into your heart. What are you running after for security? What are you running after for significance? What are you running after for refuge? We run because they appear to give significance in security. We run because they appear to give us refuge. But even... Even if you have your wish list now, right? Christmas is over. You got your wish list. Even if you have that right now, you're saying, I don't need anything else. Those things will slip away one day. Now, we, we don't deny the goodness of creation, right? So the, Many of those things I mentioned are gifts from God for us to enjoy. But listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. Our father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns but will not encourage us to mistake them for our home. These gifts of God that he gives us are not meant to be our home. They're just inns along the way. No, for David, God is his refuge. God is his security. And if God is your refuge and security, you delight in his people... and you will not. You will detest these other gods. And unlike all these other gods... This God, Yahweh, doesn't require you to scratch his back... ...so that he'll scratch yours. No, he just says, come to me. Unlike all the other gods, as we'll see later in this passage... ...this is a God who cannot be shaken, who will not slip away. So those who are on the path to life find their refuge in God, in Yahweh, the Lord. But second of all, those who are on the path to life... ...find their provision in the Lord. And we see this in verses 5 through 8. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. It's all talking about God's, the Lord's provision. When the promised land, thinking back to Joshua... ...when the promised land was divided up among the tribes of Israel... ...every tribe received... ...an allotment... ...except one tribe. You know who that is? The Levites. You am going to read about that in Numbers 18 this afternoon. The Lord said to Aaron... ...in Numbers 18-20... ...you shall have no... ...inheritance in their land... ...neither shall you have any portion... ...among them. Well that stinks, doesn't it? But listen to what he, he goes on to say further. Why? Why won't he get... ...is it because he doesn't like Aaron or the Levites? No... God says, I am your portion. I am your inheritance among the people of Israel. In other words, what David is saying as he's using that type of language, he's saying, You, O oh God, are the portion allotted to me. You, O oh God, are my inheritance. You're the only land I want. God Himself is the source of His happiness, God Himself is His treasure. If you have God, David is reminding us, you have everything you need. Jonathan Edwards, who, of course, preached 300 plus years ago in New England, thought a lot about our affections and our desires and how they relate to God. And listen to what he says. He says, whatever changes a godly man passes through... He is happy because God, who is unchangeable, is his chosen portion. Though he meet with temporal losses and be deprived of many, yea, all of his temporal enjoyments... ...yet God, whom he prefers before all, still remains, cannot be lost. While he stays in this changeable, troublesome world, he is happy because his chosen portion on which he builds as his main foundation for happiness, is above the world, above all changes. And when he goes into another world, he is still happy because that portion yet remains. Whatever he be deprived of, he cannot be deprived of his chief portion. His inheritance remains sure to him. Again, Edwards is reminding us, it's not that you won't face difficulties. It's not that you won't face trials. It's not that you won't face sorrows. The Psalms are also filled with lament to cry out to God. But even in there, there's a sense I can still delight in God because he is my portion. He's the peace I got, and I don't need another peace. And David says in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. He receives guidance from God, so in God's provision, God gives himself and he gives his word. His word, David, uh, the psalmist would say in Psalm 119, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. No doubt, David is probably reflecting back on Psalm chapter 1 where he says, I meditate on God's Torah, his instructions, his law. I meditate it on day and Night. And do you know what happens if you meditate on the word of God? Do you know what medit- happens if you saturate yourself in scripture? Well, again, you're transformed. You begin to see the world as God sees it. You begin to see others as God sees them. You begin to see yourself as God sees you. The book of Romans 12 says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when David talks about his heart, it seems as if he's he's more talking about his whole being, his conscience, that in which he makes decisions, his emotions, is so renewed by the word of God that it instructs him at night. Even when he lays his head down at night, he's so saturated in God's word. Verse 8 I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Verse 8. I shall not be shaken. How did we get from verse 1 to verse 8? Remember verse 1? Preserve me, God. Protect me. Guard me. Here's like David over here. And now there's David over here. I will not be shaken. Why? He says, I've set the Lord always before me. I'm staring at him. I'm resolved. I'm fixated on him. Are you setting the Lord before you? Before your schedule? When you fear? When tragedy strikes? God has given us so much provision for this life. You can read the rest of the Bible. You'll see that God gives us his spirit. Jesus says, when I go, it's actually better for you. We don't think like that. We think, well, if Jesus was standing right here. But he says, when I go, I'm going to send the helper, the comforter, the spirit. He gives us his spirit who lives within us. He gives us his word. He gives us the privilege of prayer, which we see exemplified in this passage. He gives us the church. All of these are provisions from God as we journey on this life to our home. He provides for us. And so are you setting the Lord before you? There is a certain resolve that this takes place that needs to happen. Those on the path of life find their refuge and provision in the Lord. Finally, number three, those on the path of life find their joy and delight in the Lord. We see this in verses 9 through 11. "...therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure." Verse 9. This unshakable confidence that David has elicits praise. I mean, how can it not? How can it not? This affects our thoughts, our actions, our emotions. Notice it affects my heart and my flesh. My heart is glad, my flesh dwells secure. My whole being many times in the Western world we try to divide up our our soul and our flesh... ...and we have so many discussions on this... ...and David doesn't seem to enter. He says, whatever those things are, my whole being rejoices in God. Why? Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or we would translate as the place of the dead. The realm of the dead. Nor will you let your Holy One see corruption... Now, we read this as Christians who affirm and believe that Jesus got up from the dead, and I don't think we're quite as awestruck by this as we should be. At this point in history, keep in mind when David was writing this psalm, there wasn't a very detailed understanding of the afterlife. There wasn't all the the information like you and I have from the rest of the revelation of Scripture. But David understood this. He understood that his friendship with God, his friendship with Yahweh, the one who created the world, the one who's renewing the world, somehow, even though he didn't have all the details at the time, somehow has to go on beyond the grave. Because he's the God of the living. And he's committed to me. I don't know exactly what that's looked like, but I know this friendship I have with God, this refuge I have, ...in God, this joy and delight I'm finding in God... ...can't end at the grave. It won't. Since God is committed to me... ...death won't be the end. This is awe. And look what David says... ...in verse 10. Death won't be the end. And then we see in verse verse 11... ...I will see him... ...he will be in his presence... I'll be in your presence where there is fullness of joy. That word presence in the Hebrew is the word panay, which is the word face. Often when the Bible talks about being in somebody's presence, it talks about seeing them face to face. So David is not just saying, he's not just giving us a, a random afterlife thought. He's saying, no, whenever, whenever this happens, whenever I pass... And it's interesting, this psalm, right? Most psalms, David's crying out, don't let me die. Save me from death. In this psalm, David's almost realizing that will happen one day. But would you preserve me even in and through it? And he's, he knows God will because, look, I'm going to see him face to face. I will stand before the face of God. In his presence. And you know what that will be like? Fullness ...of joy. And you know what else he says? You won't abandon me to the realm of the dead... ...to Sheol. My body won't decay. Folks, this is resurrection language. Hundreds of years before Jesus even... ...stepped on the earth. David... ...was saying a prayer... ...but he was also saying a prophecy. Now... ...remember this psalm is a prayer... A request for God to preserve David. And he ends so confident and happy, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. But listen to 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10. David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Was David fooled by religion? It's popularly said, popularly said that. Religion is the mass placebo effect of the world. And why were the Israelites who would have compiled all of these psalms together while they were in exile. Why were they still singing this song? Why were they still praying this song? Were they fooled as well? Why is this in our Bible? What's your answer for that? I mean it's. Right? We want, to be, we want to be logical. We want to think. Like, David said all these things. That's great. That's awesome. But David died. He was buried. God didn't answer his prayer. You guys are crazy. You believe in myths. But David wasn't fooled. In fact, I think we have better proof and better reason for confidence than even David did in his day. This psalm is more than a prayer. It's also a prophecy. And when reading the Psalms, as one commentator said, we must keep our one eye, our left eye, on the historical king, but we also must keep our right eye on the ideal king. For the Psalms talk about the historical king, at the same time they're portraying and prophesying the ideal king who would indeed come. And the first Christian sermon that we read in the book of Acts, which we read from this morning, informs us that that ideal king, the Messiah, the Christ has indeed arrived in Acts chapter 2, in Acts 13. God the Father raised the truly faithful one from the dead. Now Jesus sits. Where does Jesus sit now? Enthroned at the right hand of the Father. David was, had confidence in God, but he was talking better than he probably even knew. And the evidence is there. Right, We have eyewitness accounts. That's what our Gospels are. That's what the New Testament is. The New Testament was completed... ...while there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection... ...still alive. Jews didn't believe in a resurrection... ...in the middle of history. They believed in, in one coming at the end of the history... ...but for somebody to come... ...and rise again in the middle of the history... ...was unheard of. It was unthinkable. Yet thousands of Jews started believing in this man, Jesus... And not only that, but they gave their lives and were willing to suffer and die because they saw him get up from the dead. And consider what this implies if this is true, and indeed we believe it is. That reality makes this life, gives us confidence in our unshakable God. Storms will come, trials will come, lament will happen. Loved ones will die. But God who is our refuge, God who is our provision, our portion, our allotment, our delight, our joy, that can never, ever be taken away from you, Christian. Never. Pastor Sam Storms argues that your capacity for love, knowledge, understanding, and joy, he says... They're ever-expansive, progressive, incremental. They're always growing. They think heaven's going to be boring one day. Psalm 16 says no. Sam Storms goes on to say, you will never look upon the same reality twice... ...without some new way in which to enjoy it. You will look at each day through some new lens... ...where you see more clearly... Understand more fully and feel more deeply the truest joy. Ever increasing, ever full joy for all eternity. You see, the psalmist says you find your refuge in God. You find your provision in the Lord. You find your joy and delight in Him. Those desires portray your future destiny. Only it's going to explode. Explode. And we don't even have language like, what is fullness of joy? What is pleasures forevermore? I don't know. I can't fully explain it. But you're not going to be bored in the presence of God ever. What happens to us? Even the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life, whether it was the first time you went to the beach, whether it was the first time you saw this a specific set of mountain ranges, it was amazing. It was awe-inspiring. But what happens when you go back the next year? Still really cool, but not like the first time. What happens when you go back the third time? Still really cool, but not as good. You see what happens? Our awe goes down. But there's somehow, it seems that that's reversed when we're in the presence of God. We think, this is amazing. And you wake up the next day, and it gets even better. For all eternity. Fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. The psalmist calls this the path of life. So a question for you this morning as we close. Are you on the path of life? Is the Lord Jesus your refuge? Is the Lord Jesus your provision in whom you're satisfied? Is the Lord Jesus the one who fills you with joy because you have Jesus? Your current desire indicates your future destiny. And if you're here this morning or listening this morning... And you're not finding your refuge in Jesus. You're not finding your provision in him, your joy, delight. I want to ask, what, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Is, is there a historical dilemma, some evidence you're trying to work through? Don't conceal that. Talk, talk to somebody. Work through it. Are there sins in your life which you think are too great? Have Good news, there's, there's no sin too great to confess to this God. He stands ever ready to save All, anyone who will come to him with open hands. Not bringing your own shelter, but open hands. And he holds the keys of death itself. You can have hope in life and death because of Jesus. Christian, Hamilton Baptist Church, have we set the Lord before us this year? It takes an intention, doesn't it? It takes a discipline to do that. How are you planning on doing that in 2021? Setting the Lord before you. Why not, early service here, why not over brunch today? I'm always giving you homework. Why not over brunch today, you and your family, whoever you're with, pray through this psalm. You can do that. That's actually why they're here. They're for, they're for us to pray and sing. Pray through this psalm. Think about how is God my refuge? What areas do I need to rely on him more for my refuge? Talk about that as a family. Talk about that with your friends. Talk about that with your spouse. Think about how are we setting the Lord before us? Why not pray this psalm today? Those who find refuge, provision, delight and the Lord in the Lord will be brought through life and death to boundless joy and life unending. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus is our great refuge who conquered sin and death for us. We thank you that Jesus is our provision, the best gift we could ever receive and it is jesus who holds our hearts desires and our delight because he loved us and died for us and rose again and is now seated at your right hand where pleasures forevermore await us but we're thankful that we don't have to wait then to experience even those things so would you help us to find our refuge and joy and delight in jesus even today